You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all of our listeners today. You're listening to the Drive Time Show at 4 o'clock with myself, Rana Atta'ur Rahman, and my co-host, Imran. How's it going, Imran? In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. I'm good, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God. And um, um, do you like warm weather or cold weather? That's an interesting question straight away. Um, oh, I, I love the cold weather. Is it? <laughs> I was totally... Oh, uh, you know, you would say warm weather. The warm weather. Yeah, because most Asians... I would say like, they like the <laughs> the warm weather because oh, you're generalizing. Uh, yeah. of the <laughs> no, I, I mean I I I. It's my dream to actually, um, you know, spend all of the summer here, uh, and then as soon as it finishes around about, you could say, late September, uh-huh. then move to maybe Australia, live all of you know, sp- spend all of the summer time there. Okay. And then okay. on the way back, go to another hot country, <laughs> and then come back in may for the mm. summer here i mean yeah. that's that's the ideal kind of life definitely. but you ha- you know winter is part of our mm. lives yeah uh, we have to accept it yeah and it's been um it has been a bit you know since the last time we've spoken i think uh it's become a lot more chillier hasn't yeah. it do, do you think the the winter had come early this year compared to last no, year no i think it came late i think it okay. came late uh it's uh i, I remember I, I have like a good memory of what happened the previous year i, I remember last year mm-hmm early november it was it was it was freezing okay. but um this time november was fairly but pleasant i think it's more you know say um, it's more extensive you can say uh, I, I, i don't know to, uh, this year i'm feeling um the cold is i don't i'm feeling more i don't know why you're feeling colder the this cold year colder this year i don't know it's maybe it's because we're getting older man <laughs> it's probably that's the reason or yeah. but this is uh, this year the, there's already snow in the north oh yeah it's and, it's uh, it's, yeah. it's getting it's getting bad but look mm-hmm. the past two days have been good okay yeah. i'm really yeah. i'm really glad they're not they mm. haven't been too too bad okay mm-hmm. it's been okay but anyways look if it gets <laughs> this is going to be a, a long uh-huh. long f- two or three months before we get back to the yeah, definitely weather. Coming to our program for mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. Uh, the first hour we'll be discussing uh, Charity Week. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, from the 4th to 8th of December, which is obviously starting today, mm-hmm. marks Charity Week in the UK. Okay. Sure. UK Charity So today week. is fourth, so, yeah. so it's the beginning of the... It is, there. It's, it's uh, week, yeah, Charity Week. The, yeah. the week has started, it's, um, you know, it's... It, it kind of coincides with, um, I guess, school themes as well. You know, okay. these th- this... W- I believe that um this whole week in school mm-hmm. schools mm-hmm. will just be uh you know a, a week of fundraising as well it's okay. it, it, it's like ingrained in the children mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um yeah it obviously it's building up to the to the festive season mm-hmm. or the Christi- uh, christmas mm-hmm. season but anyways the UK charity week uh or hashtag #UK charity week is an annual charity campaign designed to allow the people of the United Kingdom to place awareness and fundraising for charities high on the national agenda and at a time of the year when people are statist- statistically at their most giving so this is quite um, as i said it's an, it's it, it does coincide with the fact that mm-hmm. they hold they're trying to hold it um mm-hmm. in a in a time where you are feeling festive you are feeling mm-hmm. generous to mm-hmm. um it is interesting that you know people give at this time of year more money compared to other 
other uh, yeah i mean um, it, it, it's mm. it's obviously I, mm. um, do you think it's a psychological factor uh, because uh, you know when you feel cold uh, you realize that uh, <laughs> when you feel cold <laughs> you want to give more money um, <laughs> no i think it's more uh, to do with um, just it it, maybe it is it is psychological hmm? it is psychological in the sense that it you, you are feeling a bit more joyous okay, okay. you're feeling a bit more um happy in the in the sense that, that look you, you, you it's leading up to a long holiday mm-hmm. throughout the whole year and uh, so you want to include other people in your happiness yeah, maybe yeah and you and if you're if you're if you're in that mood mm-hmm. um then you know you you start con- contemplating on your mm-hmm. life you start looking around and seeing others you start realizing that others are maybe less fortunate and okay. they should um, they should celebrate yeah, with they you should and celebrate should, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's you know how could we relate it to mm-hmm. we could relate it to maybe the eid mm-hmm. festival okay okay, okay. um eid or a wedding for instance mm-hmm. we, you know a time of wedding uh is usually a very joyous time for any f- uh, family okay mm-hmm. um and you don't you, you realize a lot afterwards that you you know you've, you've spent i mean i mean if if we talk about islam specifically before eid there's a, there's a obligatory a fund of or you can say an charity yeah, cha- charity uh, which every person have to give yeah and uh, um, the, and the philosophy of the charity is that you have to uh, you have to share your happiness with share other people happiness. who who are less fortunate than yeah. you and who cannot you know enjoy uh, life or maybe the luxuries of yeah. life as you are enjoying maybe they don't, yeah. don't have um have anything to eat yeah so i think this is the same thing yeah. uh, i mean mid- i mean look mm-hmm. in in islam as you mentioned the point about obligation okay <laughs> uh ob- obligation is is no one is exactly forced right uh, or you have to give it or you or you're not a muslim no it's it's the oblig the the obligation is born within you okay, okay. that look this is something you you grow up with mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you understand that this is the this this is important for the sustenance i see of the religion or just in general society okay mm-hmm. charity in itself is something which is born within you Okay. okay it's 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 a feeling of wanting to give mm-hmm. uh to improve others okay so that's how i understand it that's how mm-hmm. I, i i've always seen islam as a as a religion of uh building that um mm-hmm. that will to do good things mm-hmm. inside you rather than the force uh or the you know to be forced to do something good mm-hmm. um and i i believe similarly this whole you know for for instance for considering that this is charity week i mm-hmm. believe that this is also a um you know it's 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 you could you could call it um you know it's it, it should actually be the whole year okay mm-hmm. charity should be something like Definitely. it doesn't necessarily have to be a week Definitely. it should be the whole year but uh, at least there is something dedicated for mm-hmm. it that look um think about it uh in terms of the, the festiveness the the moving towards the mm-hmm. the holiday season um and you know this and i was i was building up to this that there's a lot of tying in of the families um so that's one thing that you know it, it, mm. it encourages you okay. from within i think we do have a survey um so uh, we asked our listeners or our listeners that in what way were you charitable this week yeah and uh, 52% said that um they give uh, some money yeah. to, uh, to some charity uh, 23% said um uh, i gave my time yeah and 16% said that i donate something maybe clothes shoes anything and 10% said that, that i haven't uh, i didn't give anything mm. so i think th- this remind me uh, one of the w- very beautiful verse of the holy quran in which allah the Al- almighty 
describe the quality of the believer that mimmarazaknahum yunfikun that whatever they have they ex- they expend in the way of Allah yeah. helping people whatever they have they, if they have a time then they um, you know volunteer their time mm-hmm. for the for the people if they have a money yeah. then uh, they give the money if they have some some sort of maybe um, for example if they are teacher Hmm. They, um, they, f- you know, uh, maybe give lesson to the students yeah. at free of cost. So I think the, uh, this theme, uh, you know, um, is uh, is very, I think, powerful. Yeah. That you know, some people say that if we don't have money, how can we, you know, uh, be we, a charitable person? How can we be charitable? Yeah, so exactly. Whatever, it's not necessarily, yeah. uh, it's not necessarily uh, inclined to money as well. Okay, and um, really, it, it's more to do with. uh giving something that is dear to you okay Definitely. and it, n- not just something that is dear to you but also uh you know things that uh, uh, you would mm-hmm. want others to have because they're of, they are uh, you know it's hard to say it, like mm-hmm. oh, i've given my 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 clothes i've given my shoes mm-hmm. they're of new, no use to me anymore so i'm giving it to others so this is charity well mm-hmm. the thing is it's not you, you know you're not doing anything wrong here mm-hmm. either it's anything that isn't really being used um and or is of that is not, mm. is not of the same sort of value to you uh it could be the most valuable thing to someone else okay definitely yeah you know i i i do a lot of um sh- you know sh- shopping here and there i mm-hmm. i do a lot of like visiting of like charity shops you know there's so many um amazing things which i'm i'm amazed that people have have just um, donated okay. to the okay. to ch- to charity shops mm. you know um you could get uh, some really really interesting things from there mm. um so th- this this sense of generosity is 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 highly necessary and as you've also uh, touched upon the verse of the holy quran in chapter 16 verse 91 of the holy quran states verily allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression he admonished that you may take uh, that you may take heed so uh joining it in line with your mm-hmm. verse uh the not your verse but mm-hmm. the verse that you quoted mm-hmm. um yes the holy quran uh is is the book of uh law to remain till the day of judgment mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it is incumbent upon the muslims um to always spend out of whatever goodness uh, they have uh, goodness doesn't necessarily have to be money it could also be your efforts as you said mm-hmm. I, i think is this a very interesting verse because if you look towards this verse um you know they have allah, allah the almighty talks about the three stages of piety yep. or goodness uh, first one allah the almighty talks about uh, the justice mm. so justice uh, in a simple term uh, in arabic if we call adl mm. and so you do good um, as much as other person have done it for you mm-hmm. so this is the you know lowest stage of piety or goodness yeah then god almighty talks about the uh, ihsan which is um to give someone or to to uh, to you can say uh, to do more uh, what is other person has done to you yeah so you basically you're favoring him more yeah. what he have favored you in the past maybe mm-hmm. and then allah the almighty talks about ita is al qurba that the highest stage of goodness and piety is that you you do good to others without uh, you know without the intention that you have uh, without the intention that um um they will give something to you yeah so this is the highest stage god almighty talks about so um the last and the highest stage of moral development of man is 
giving like kindred. Mm. And at this stage, a man is expected to do good to others, not in return for any good received mm. from them, nor with the idea of doing more good than the good received, but prompted by a, a natural impulse as good is done to very near blood relations. So this is the very beautiful philosophy, I think, mm. which Islam presents. Okay. Um, so let's move on to some stats. Okay. Mm. A UK giving report 2023 published by Charities Aid Foundation found that the British people donated 12.7 billion to charities in 2022. Estimated total amount given in the UK in 2022 was 12.7 billion, increasing from okay. 10.7 billion in 2021. The increase in the amount donated is as a result of people on average on on average donating more rather than an increase in the number of people donating this mm -hmm. record figures uh, the this record figure needs to be considered in the con context of high inflation mm -hmm. donation levels and engagement with the charities have still not recovered to pre-pandemic levels donation levels in 2022 followed a similar pattern in 2021 except for months where donation levels were higher likely due to the response in the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. the overall level in the participation in charitable and uh, civic civic minded activities mm -hmm. in 2022 is 84% okay. is broadly consistent with 2021, which is 83%, but has not returned to pre pandemic levels, which is 88% in 2019. It's like a it's it's a good good mm. so, sort of comparison. Mm. Um, I think we were early the show we were talking about the cost of living crisis. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think is one of the reason that people um, they are giving less charity is because they are struggling themselves. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, um, I know some of the people that they used to give a lot of charity, but now they themselves are struggling. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, uh, yes, definitely a cost of living crisis has a huge, uh, I would say, negative impact on the, on the charity. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, 100% because... Mm -hmm how much um, you know disposable income do you have now mm -hmm. you know uh, income that you want to give into uh, for the, for the betterment of others how much do you have uh, to give at this moment so uh, as you said uh, the cost of living and I, and I think pre show we were discussing mm -hmm. um, you know my my own electricity bills <laughs> um, and i was thinking well what you know it's how it, what do you have left for the for the remainder of the month Definitely. in terms of yeah. like uh, if it's, I'm not just speaking for myself, but uh -huh. I'm talking about everyone. Everyone is obviously going through some sort of mm. like uh, t uh, some sort of issues in that sense, right? Mm. So, we have our first caller okay. on on the line. We have uh, uh, Homera Homera Hakani, who is the chairperson of Let's Talk. Um, so, let's talk to Homera Hakani. Sorry. Hello. Hello. Uh, hi, Homera. Hello. Peace Islamical. be upon you. Well, Islam. Peace be upon you. Um, Thank so um, yeah, uh, we uh, want to know for those listeners who are unsure, could you explain what's what is Let Let's Talk? Yes, it's actually a non-profit organization for community purpose. Uh, actually, we started in 2017 for health awareness, mental health awareness, yeah. uh, with a group of doctors. But later on, we we noticed that uh, actually that uh, it's not only the mental health, it's physical health, and our community need lot of awareness and information about these issues and lot of topics. 
where we need to talk because uh, as you know that still many topics are very taboo to talk in our community yeah. mm-hmm. so that's why we chose this name let's talk and we started this uh, so it started with a group of doctors and now we have uh, other members of community involved in as well so now right now what we're doing is uh, we have a small center in Rochester mm-hmm. north of Manchester uh, north of England Manchester greater Manchester area yeah uh and uh, we are uh, running a support group for women actually right now so what we are doing uh like every monday there is a drop in session for women they can come and we try to uh, provide as much as help possible and you know so this is what let's talk is right now and we doing more other activities as well so we started in 2017 and 2019 we found our own place so we, uh, now we are locally based in rochester Mm-hmm. Um Amara do you have uh, any helpline where people can call and you know talks about their problem if they are struggling with mental health and stuff like that Uh unfortunately no mm-hmm. because uh, we are not funded from any or uh, big uh, like lottery fund and all these okay. things so we are okay. not funded and honestly we started as a like we six seven group of uh, like okay. doctors were sitting together and they started this completely on uh, self uh, funded organization Mm-hmm. So unfortunately right now everybody is working so we don't have any helpline and it's uh, you know running a helpline is cost you as well okay. so which we can't afford right now so that's okay. why we don't have any helpline but anyone can a woman can any woman can come okay monday between 11 and 2 o'clock okay. and we can talk to them one to one and whatever help we can provide them one to one or any type of support we do okay great so in what ways does uh, last talk benefit from donations uh actually donations as i said like it's uh, completely friends and family funded funded uh, so donation when we receive any donation from the people from our friends and family and the the ladies those who come we def uh, all 100% we use for their benefit okay like uh, we believe that if someone have a healthy mind body and soul it's much easier for them and first of all healthy mind is very important Mm-hmm. so we mm-hmm. provide them lot of workshops on mental health issues like after covid you know that uh, loneliness and depression anxiety is too high in community mm-hmm. so we try to deliver workshop we try to deliver uh, activities for them from that donations so different type like yoga sometimes okay. we take them for walk sometimes we mm-hmm. take them to theater so different type of activities yeah um and are the donations you receive sufficient enough whether it's financial donations or others uh no <laughs> no unfortunately <laughs> not we with like uh, i'm working full time mm-hmm. and uh, my family so uh, thanks god and thanks to allah and thanks to my good friends and we are receive whatever we receive we spend 100% uh completely for this uh, charity purpose yeah. mm-hmm. but they are not sufficient definitely mm-hmm. we need more if, uh, then we can definitely pro- do more activities you know mm-hmm. um amara how can our listeners find out more about yourselves or volunteer to help your charity uh i don't know where you base and your listeners if they are based mm-hmm. in greater manchester they can uh go on our website which is www.letstalkrochdale.co.uk or they can drop me in uh, like they can drop an email or they can come personally to us okay monday as uh, is women day so they can come at uh, 11 o'clock we serve hot lunch as well Mm-hmm. Wednesdays we are there as well from 12 o'clock till 2 o'clock where we help the refugees families okay 
So they can come, they can get, uh, you know, clothing and everything. So anyway, our center is open again between 12 and 2 on Wednesday. And Thursday, we are again open from 11 o'clock till 2 o'clock. And it's completely for the community. So anyone can come in. They need any help regarding for mental health or anything. So we discuss, we forward them their name to the relevant person. Or they can choose free clothing from there. They can choose they can pick the free food packet from there and they can have hot lunch from there as well. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to come, they are more than welcome Monday, Wednesday and Thursday. And okay. Or they can drop me an email or call me. Uh, we will help them as, as much as possible. Fantastic. Um, so Mara, uh, do you want to give any message to our listeners uh, regarding charity or anything uh, you think uh, it, uh, which is important um, for your organization and generally uh, about charity? Uh, for charity purpose, uh, you know, my message is this, like, you know, honestly, I started just on my own. First, okay. I was the only person who thought I, my children are grown up. I think I need to do something. But uh, God is, Allah Ta'ala is really great. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you take your first step, okay. you got help. Okay. Honestly, without any funding, without anything, I don't know how we have done last these so many years. Mm-hmm. It's from uh, God is coming. So I think if anybody wants to do charity, take the first step, which is most difficult one. Take mm-hmm. it and the God will g- help you. You will not believe it where it will come from. Okay. Brilliant, Humaira. And uh, I would once again, uh, on your behalf, I would like to request all of our listeners to um, you know, uh, pay heed and uh, to this uh, wonderful advice. And if there are listeners around Rochdale uh, or wherever you are based. Uh, I hope that they also uh, also provide further mm-hmm. donations to your charity because, of course, it's uh, it's from what we're hearing, it sounds like a brilliant cause. Jazakallah for your time. Yes, thank you very much. Jazakallah for your time as well. Thank, thank you, you very much. Okay. So that was, um, you know, the, me- the message at the end. I think mm-hmm. that was, it was, it was brilliant. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, if you, if you think about it, um, mm-hmm. As long as you step forward in the right cause, mm-hmm. um, that's what sh- the argument here is. That as long as you are willing to step forward in the right cause, God will then, mm-hmm. do, you know, He will grab your hand and He will He will take you forward. So mm-hmm. definitely, I think Homera um, uh, Hakani, um, uh, she she talks about you know uh, in in in, a, in a lo- just give the message that if you want to do good any 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 good thing. Just start, and yeah. then let's see how God Almighty will yeah. help you along the yeah. way. And it's not like as if she's. It's. It's. This is something which you, mm. you have to give a lot from Definitely. yourself. Okay, and so I'm, yeah, it's so not just something like okay, let's just go for a. Um, let's just go and do something mm. nice. It's. It, there's a lot of sacrifice in, involved in this as well. Definitely. And but she said, <coughs> I think she she's full time. She's being full time. And though. if you think about it, okay, so once you make that, uh, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do great. For mm-hmm. someone, I'm going to sacrifice a lot for for the for the right cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, God Almighty opens the doors for you to sacrifice more and more and gain more and more blessings. That's okay. you know that that was a beautiful message. So um, I think it, um, uh, she reminded me one of the beautiful saying of the Holy Prophet, yeah. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he said that if you remove a difficulty of a person on yeah. the day of judgment, Allah will remove your difficulty. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's uh, as a very encouraging message and Brilliant message, I think yeah. um, that's what um, Omera was you know trying to emphasize as well um, that uh, do not wait for anything do not I wait know, for it go for uh, it go, yeah I, I know some people 
who just cook hot meal yeah. in, the, in their homes and they just distribute to the to the people um you know maybe who are living who do, doesn't have anything yeah. um uh, so um um you always start with the yeah. small thing i think i think mm-hmm. there is also this thing about you know there's 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 so many people in this world who are mm. willing to do good Definitely. and you just need to provide them with the opportunity mm. okay mm. i i i remember when once i was doing a like a during covid as well i was doing um uh, you know a food food uh, bank campaign mm-hmm. for for someone okay. um and i was um, i was astonished that uh, the way people were willing to just donate for the sake of it because they realized that this mm-hmm. is a time where a lot of people can't um mm-hmm. necessarily go and buy food mm-hmm. so the food banks were going to be uh, very important uh and i was you know when i was doing this camp when i was helping someone okay. it was the response i was getting on a weekly basis mm-hmm. um was was amazing it's just that then i realized that look there there are people ready in life they want to do good you just need to find they need to you need to provide them with the opportunity i think there's a misconception as well that you know um in in the uk it's supposed to be sixth or fifth biggest lar- largest economy of the world and you tend to think that you know people don't need you know food stuff yeah. like that but when actually you go yeah and uh, distribute the food then you realize no people actually struggling and we were discussing about you know previously um about the cost of living crisis um it doesn't matter uh, how much you have uh, you know how, how you know if you're j- doing a good job or just a normal job uh, everyone is struggling and uh, what about those people who are don't have you know this kind of uh, uh, privilege so by the grace of god we are privileged and we you know we get sufficient uh, amount of um, you know salary but um, yeah i think um, t- if if you have uh, if you have something if you want to do good you can volunteer yeah you can donate some money um you can give your time yeah i mean this is all form of different all, charities all, yeah right. so let's carry on with the you know we, where we left off in terms of our discussion the cost of living crisis as we were discussing is having an impact on charitable giving uh, on charitable giving across 2022 more than two thirds or 69% of the people indicated that they would need to make cuts to their spending to help manage bills including 17% who said they would be likely to cut their charitable donations in total a quarter or 24% of people reported they made they had made or were considering making changes to their charitable behaviors this included reducing or cancelling a regular charity donation of 5% mm-hmm. uh, and choosing not to make a one off donation of 10% or so 10% yeah. people uh, there is uh, yeah there is a, a sustained reduction in volunteering levels in 2022 an average of 7% reported volunteering for a charity in the past 4 weeks and this uh, signifies a sustained reduction from pre-pandemic levels which is 9% mm. so you can say 2% um you can yeah 2% has reduced since the um pre so before the covid people used to volunteer themselves 9% and now they're wanting 7%. So you can see the decline and the proportion of people volunteering in the past 12 months has also declined over time, uh falling from 16 in percent in uh 20 um 2018 to 13% in 2022. Now this represents around 1.6 million fewer people volunteering compared to 5 years ago. Um so I think definitely um people are, you know, struggling to give uh to do charity uh, but again um 
when you struggle yourself, but still uh, you sacrifice just for the sake of God, then Allah the Almighty, God Almighty will 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 give you, um, or you say will bless you in a way that you will not accept, you will not you know um, you will not uh, think about. Yeah. So in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, in the case of those who spend their wealth to seek the pleasure of Allah and to strengthen their souls is like the case of a garden on elevated ground. Heavy rain falls on it so that it brings forth its fruit twofold. And if heavy rains does not fall on it, then light rain suffices. Mm-hmm. And Allah sees what you do. So this is verses from chapter 2 was 266 so spending money in the cause of Allah the Almighty leads to strengthening of soul and the man who strives in the cause of God by spending his wealth imposes a burden on himself which makes him which makes him still more firm and steadfast in his faith besides as he helps other with his money God helps him and protects him from harm so I think this is a beautiful verse um, and uh, Allah the Almighty does help the person who uh, is willing to support his brother who is struggling exactly and it's it's all tying down to the way you know we have been discussing throughout the whole uh, program and through with our with our uh, listeners as well mm-hmm. um, especially our caller who gave this very beautiful message as we were you know we discussed it and you know it, it mm-hmm. hit us so hard Definitely. that we had to dis- discuss it in, in mm-hmm. deep so Let's talk about the importance of giving charity. Number one, giving mm-hmm. charity makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Uh, donating to charity is a major mood booster. Okay. The knowledge that you are helping others is hugely empowering and in turn can make you feel better, uh, feel happier and more fulfilled. Research has identified a link between making a donation to charity and increased activity in the area of the brain that registers pleasure. It's, it's a, I think it's a... Very good point. I also was uh, reading an article that uh, you say that two things makes you happy. One is uh, that when you do something good for other for the people yeah. without um, any motive, mm-hmm. and the second is when you play with little children. Yeah. So it it reduces your stress and gives you the uh, the feeling of warmthness and happiness. And, uh, you know, because I think because if, if we look to the religious point of view, your, your purpose in life is to, to uh, Holy Quran summarizes up in, in two points. One is serving your creator and the second is serving his creation. Mm. And when you fulfill that, pers- that purpose, that you help those who, who are in need, yep. then it, it fulfills the purpose w- um, um, which you, which God Almighty, you know, created. Mm-hmm. Uh, you for this purpose. So when you fulfill your purpose of yeah. cr- of, uh, of being created, then you feel happiness and warmthness in your heart. Yeah. And yeah. I- I- in terms of you know you're saying fulfilling of a purpose, mm-hmm. uh, you're 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 touching upon one part one one of your purposes yeah. is is to make um, is to serve as you said serve Hukul, man, yeah, the, 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 the rights and, of the and for this you know it, uh, charity is a, is one of yeah. the w- one of the fundamental ways mm, um, definitely. So yeah, and and it, it is relatable. Uh, mm. I believe I believe we've always uh, we've 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 grown up on mm. uh, giving, uh, donating. Uh, we've grown up on uh, see- seeing how your donations mm. 
uh, can make a make a change uh, mm. in not just your lives but in other people's lives. Okay. And I think giving to charity strengthens your personal values as well. Yeah. You know, and having the power to improve the lives of other is, to many people, a privilege. And and you know, and and one that comes with its own sense of obligation. Acting on this powerful feeling of responsibility is a great way to reinforce our own personal values and feel like we are living in a way that is true to mm-hmm. our own beliefs. So it, giving charity strengthens your own you know, personal values, it strengthens your uh, personality as a person. Mm. And um, it it gives you the positive vibes as a person that, okay, you you are here for some purpose. Yeah. And when you fulfill that purpose, helping helping other people, then definitely it cherishes your personality. Yeah. Then giving um, charity can you know uh, reintroduce friends and family yeah. to to the importance of generosity. So knowing someone who gives to um, charity can be a catalyst for giving to charity yourself. By giving to charity, you may well be helping to remind friends and family of causes they themselves are passionate about mm. and would like to support. So your charitable donation could even bring about a family-wide effort to back a charity or charities that have special significance uh, to you as a group. So this is mm. this is actually a very important point uh, mm-hmm. that you've you've mentioned there. Um mm. I would all, I I've I've seen people mm. um throughout not just my social circle but just other people's um uh, friend circles mm-hmm. as well you know they they sometimes make it a purpose of life mm-hmm. to raise money for a particular charity that or uh, donations towards mm-hmm. a uh, you know the treatment of some let's say for instance uh, cancer research okay okay uh, leukemia okay. um you know all of these things which dementia stuff like that yeah which which have uh, which are so relatable to everyone okay, okay? So a, a loved one may have been a you know a victim to one of these mm-hmm. uh they've they've lost someone who's very dear to them or it could be uh, used uh, in order to um save or help someone who mm-hmm. who requires the money um for their treatment or if you've lost someone you know you it, it's hurt, it hurts you so much that you wouldn't want anyone else uh, to ever go through that sort of pain mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. They, they 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 change their lives they completely change their lifestyle in order to raise money for uh, a particular charity like that okay. and um you know i w- i know people who are chain smokers for instance okay. uh, they would give up their that that sort of lifestyle um in order to become much more healthier for the sake of um you know raising money for charity mm-hmm. doing a, doing a marathon for instance that look this is my purpose in life i'm changing i want to raise money mm-hmm. for something um bec- which which is dear to me because i have lost someone because mm-hmm. of that um mm-hmm. and you know this it's it, it creates a revolutionary change um, it, and it gives you a purpose mm-hmm. for something it, it, it's so helpful in the sense that it, you know we've we've discussed mental health so many times mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. uh, it's it's brilliant for your mental health you okay. know it, it shifts you away from the the state of uh regret and sorrow mm-hmm. and into a state of you know uh let's move towards a purpose of or a goal and if in that goal it's going to be useful uh mm-hmm. for someone else uh it's you know 
it's it's probably the most mm -hmm. sa that that is a sense of satisfaction that's one of the drives uh which i've i've noticed um yeah uh, hey i just wanted to um make a one one point um I, i've i've seen in my you know life and i also you know uh, what i've seen in, you know, around my circle that uh, you know if we're struggling with something for example if you're struggling with some sort of uh, you know, addiction and um you cannot get out of that addiction so if you help other people through your money through your time or through anything other people um get out of that addiction so allah the almighty will remove your difficulty so in my life i experienced this yeah. this thing that uh, once i was struggling with my studies mm -hmm. and um and i help other students yeah. um to to you know to make them uh, through through money or through time and i i see the blessing in my in my in my own you know life through that through that giving charity to, or to giving the time or uh, or money to other students mm. and that that gives me also a satisfaction and and the feeling of fulfillment and also allah the almighty uh, remove my own difficulty which by, which i was facing in my studies yeah so i think giving charity if you give charity for this purpose or with this um philosophy is is another i think it's a very good point yeah. to ponder upon okay let's listen to a audio uh, from the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza tahir ahmed may allah have mercy on his soul explaining the significance of sacrificing meat and donating money in their own perspective ways now this is a bit more of a this this adds uh, to the perspective of what charity is mm -hmm. in fact the sacrifice of goat is uh, more commendable in such societies where the economic standard is so poor that many people many families are left without eating meat for very long periods of time for instance in india and pakistan we know positively that uh, there are certain families who by themselves cannot afford to eat meat even in 6 months so there in such societies if you give them some money they would rather spend that money on something else so it is better to leave them no choice and to make them share the pleasure of eating flesh which they very much like to very well. so it is advisable to give sadqa by way of sacrificing goats or other animals but if some people need money otherwise as well for the education of their children for their clothing for other things then it should not always be the sadqa in the form of sacrificing of goats you should uh, balance your act by mixing things together sometimes you can give money sometimes you can give clothes sometimes uh, flesh and so on and so forth So you were just listening to the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya community and he was giving, you know, fair examples of what you can and uh, what you can donate in terms mm. of charity. So uh, we have another caller on the okay. uh, uh, on the line. We have Kaleem Edwards who is a charity worker for for Humanity First. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, peace be upon you, Kaleem. Can you hear us? Assalamualaikum. Yes, I can indeed. Yes, you're, you're coming through live and uh, live and direct. Oh, that's brilliant. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, for our for those listeners who are unaware, 
Could you please explain who Humanity First well, is? Well, first off, I'd like to apologise. If people don't know who Humanity First is, <laughs> and I have failed. I have failed miserably. It's my own job. I only have one job, which is to make sure everyone knows about Humanity First. But, but if someone has just arrived back from Mars, yeah. Humanity First was done in 19, set up in 1995 as a, as a sort of, to allow us to serve mankind. And that, that's uh, people of all faiths and shapes and sizes. Um, obviously, we started with the uh, the Bosnian crisis, um, and the Amity Muslim Association needed like its own separate, um, like the Catholics have Cafe yeah. and and uh, and Oxfam have uh, a Christian charity, and yada yada. Yeah. You know, everyone has their own sort of. A, so the idea is that uh, the Amity Muslim Association would have, you know, a charity where its members would be seen independently and yep. uh, it, it, you know so that's the that's the good thing it, where it collects money from from everyone mm-hmm. in, you know from the whole world helps the whole world um it's is linked obviously to the um, the muslim association but um and many of our volunteers are there but not all of them you know we have trips going out to africa where you know you know the majority are uh, not, not even Muslims. So it really is um, serving mankind. Is mankind serving mankind? Put it that way. But um, that's the sort of history lesson. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that, that history lesson has brought a lot of people back from Mars, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. I, peace be upon you, Kaleem. Um, yeah. uh, we are celebrating in the UK a, ch- a charity week. So could you highlight the importance of giving to charity? Well, I think the thing is that um, charity is amazing. And in that you don't have to give uh, money, you can give your time. Um, so, 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 you know, even if you're very poor, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can do it. I used to, she went at first used to help out with a, a mobile library service mm-hmm. for homeless people mm-hmm. uh, up in central London. And some of the people that helped on the library were the themselves homeless. So mm-hmm. this is homeless people helping others. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily money or food. It was just to normalize them so that they weren't seen mm-hmm. as, you know, um, you know, you know, someone that wouldn't wouldn't be worthy of talking to. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, charity is everything. It's not just giving, you know, one sixteenth of your salary or giving 10 percent of your charity. You know, giving that money is kind of irrelevant if you don't have a charitable nature as well. So I think it's almost as important to do do the work. So go and volunteer for your local charity, whether it's Humanity First or something else. You know, definitely think that that's uh, very strong. So charity works superbly as we run into the sort of the the, um, the New Year festivities and things like that. Mm-hmm. We'll be working on Boxing Day, helping you know taking people to to, to their Christmas lunch. Um, you know, through another through another charity. So mm-hmm. it's, you don't have to be isolated. I'm doing this work for this own charity. You know, a lot of charities all work together. So I think we're better together, and um, and, and and so the charity week is, is very good for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kalim, you earlier talk about the Bosnian crisis right now we are facing another crisis palestine and israel uh, like crisis um can you how can you guide those people who want to donate something or for um uh, on the humanity first website yeah i mean obviously hmm. you know it's a terrible situation at the moment in in gaza and in that uh, that part of the world hmm. we saw ukraine and and russia you know not mm-hmm. six months ago it was ter- and and i hope you uh, listeners all saw the work mm-hmm. and the soup kitchens and our people working tirelessly to help the ukrainians that yep. have fled yep. you know there we were able to help 
German mm. German Jamaat, uh, you know, German uh, uh, people mm. rushing to help, mm. and people from the UK and America all going to help there. Okay. Obviously, Gaza is a slightly different situation in that we can't just get up there and go. I see. But okay. we've got our colleagues. We work with anera.org, so we talked earlier about charities working together. So in 2021, we set up a, a desalination plant. So we're actually providing, Humanity First are providing water okay. to Gazans at the moment. So we desalinate, we take the salt out of uh, seawater, generate uh, fresh water for people to drink in Gaza. That was done mm-hmm. in 2021. We, we, you know, we've got a long-standing relationship with, uh, with them going back many years uh, uh, you know, because this is not the, unfortunately, this is not the first crisis that's been mm. out in Gaza. Mm. Okay, so, you know, you, you know, people forget, oh, you know, well, I, you know, because I know that, and, and obviously there's a bit of criticism of why, why are sometimes people are a bit slow to sort of publicize what they're doing. And some of it's sanctions work. It's tricky, you know, okay. as a charity, uh, when okay. you receive money, how to spend it. And, yeah. and you know, in some of these politically sensitive countries, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can be a real challenge because the UK government, we're all charity commission registered. Mm. We have, you know, and unfortunately the government makes certain loopholes. So I can only apologise if we're not seen to be first out tweeting, but we have to be so careful mm. as, a, as, a, as a charity because we've seen other charities um, fall foul of um, regulations and, and, and it leads to embarrassment and, uh, and ultimately sort of failure. So we have to be careful about... Uh, what we what we what we post, but you should everyone should feel, you know, delighted and and, and trust us because honestly, mm-hmm. the money that you give to Humanity First goes so much further because we don't have any volunteer, you don't have any paid staff. We have Definitely. maybe a handful of, of paid staff in the whole world. Mm-hmm. You know, the vast majority are volunteers. Okay, so as a charity worker for Humanity First, how do you and other workers benefit from doing charity work? You know, that's a bit more personal. Like. Yeah, no, no, I mean. Um, I think what you do is if you're walking down the street and you see someone in difficulty, mm-hmm. you see an old lady, she drops a bag, or a, an old man you know, needs help standing up or something, when you help them, what sort of warm feeling do you get? You yeah. get a tremendous warm feeling. Right. You feel good for the whole day. So, A, all the listeners should go do something. You know, go see your neighbour. How are you doing? Can I take your bins out? Mm. Just do that one act of charity. No, no, it's you brilliant. Yeah, it's fabulous. A, very good. Very good yeah. advice. Yeah. So, so, honestly, when you're walking on the tube, you're getting on the bus, you should be eyes alert, looking to help any old lady, old man, you know, young person, mother, this and this, with a smile on your face. That smile on your face is charity as well. Yes. So don't look threatening with your hood up and looking dodgy. <laughs> you know, like, you know, be the best you can be. <laughs> Big smiley face. That will go a long way. And if everyone did a little bit of charity work, that you know, we should be falling over ourselves, yeah. you know, that... Um, you know, to, to to do that charitable work. Like we, in Islam, we say, you know, the first person to offer their hand and say Islam, that's respect. You that know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. So you should be doing exactly the same thing, but with your charitable hand. Yeah. Right. right. So how do Humanity First use the charity donations given to them? You know, it's probably yeah, a very well, long and detailed answer. For, yeah, yeah. No, 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 exactly. So, so as we discussed, char- um, Humanity First is very odd in that we'd have, uh, if you look at most charities down this high street, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Salvation Army, this, that, and the other, all of these, you know, Oxfam, they have a board of directors, probably all on £100,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. and obviously they're not, they could be earning 200 and 300 grand working for a big corporate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're doing a favour to Oxfam or Salvation Army by having only six-figure salaries. Mm-hmm. But you look at Humanity First Board. Mm-hmm. Dr. Aziz, God bless him, you know, he's a GP, you know, a very passionate man. You know, we've got 
you know, high-ranking individuals around the board table, mm-hmm. you know, people who work for Pfizer, you know, on really, you know, who in their real world are on lots of money, but they volunteer for Humanity First for nothing, for zero. Mm-hmm. Zero money <laughs> is taken. <laughs> so, we, so when you give a pound to Humanity First, we're not spending 65 pence of it on running an office, paying the staff, paying the secretary, uh, doing travel expenses. You know, when we fly, I, you know, and I would recommend this to anyone, if you want to mm-hmm. come to Humanity First and do work, if you pay for the flights, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll give you a job to do. You go to Africa, paint a school, go to this place, and, you know, you can do activities. But we okay. always ask people, look, would you mind paying for the flight? Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. means that any donated money just goes much further. So yeah. mm-hmm. wherever possible, there's, you know, there's, there, we're not taking funds. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how can the listeners donate to or find out more about Humanity First? Yeah, so we've got a few uh, websites. Google's quite good. Type yeah. in Humanity Space First. The obviously, it's Humanity First UK mm-hmm. um, is the entity we're talking about here, but there's also Humanity First International, okay. um, which is the sort of parent body of looking after her, Humanity First America. But as you voice of Islam is the lovely global nation, it even reaches out to people in Mars, I understand. So, yeah. <laughs> it definitely brought us back from Mars. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, but um, anyway, so, 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 you know, that, you know, there's a humanity first out there for everyone. We're in many, many countries. I think 65 countries, possibly something like that, and maybe okay. working in up to 70. So, alhamdulillah, we've done really well. But if there are any covers, you know, like if you say to yourself, oh, well, there's no... If you look back a few years ago, mm-hmm. there wasn't a humanity first food bank. And it's only through the actions of spirited people with enthusiasm and energy that mm-hmm. they now have humanity first food banks in the UK. So I beg any listeners to say, you know what, grab your enthusiasm, become your local humanity first thing and do something. Even if you want to collect clothes from people and take it to the, uh, the, the, the clothes retailer and turn it into money, you know, you can be my humanity first clothes recycler, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. I want people to come with enthusiasm and energy to say, mm-hmm. all you've got to do is chris.edwards at uk.humanityfirst.org. Email me with your suggested answer, and you're going to do this, and I will give you Humanity First cap, some Humanity First honey. I will bless you with all I can <laughs> to make sure that you can do it. So anyone, I'm not asking for your money. I'm asking for your time and energy. Time and energy yes. Thank you so much, uh, Kaleem Sahib. It was, you know, it was, it was very uh, I've got to go. I've got to rush now to Mars. There's another solar system waiting for me. Off you so go, I'm going to have to hop. Off you go, mate. Take care, my friend. God bless you. Assalamualaikum. Yeah, that was a you know that was a very enjoying yeah. uh, joyful uh, yeah. and you know brilliant um, I think that insight. the way he he basically um encourages people i want to do not yeah no I'm, I'm ready man let's, let's go so, i want to get my i want to get some honey but uh, let's um, let's power through this now so in uh, the friday sermon delivered by the head of the Ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza masrur ahmed on the february on february the 24th 2017 his holiness stated the promised messiah islam has explained that sadaqah is derived from sadaq uh, from sidq which means that the one who gives alms in the way of allah displays a relationship of sidq truthfulness and sincerity with him he also stated what happens when a person gives sadaqa or financial sacrifice in the way of Allah uh, purely to attain his mercy and also pledges to strive to his utmost uh, to avoid transgressing? Uh, this has been conveyed by Allah the Almighty through the Holy Prophet who informed us that God said, Tell my servants that when they advance one step towards me, I move two steps towards them. 
and when they walk rapidly towards me i rush towards mm-hmm. them so this is also mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's um very much in line with what uh, our caller uh, Humera Saiba said mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. that she said just go forward and god almighty yeah, will god almighty will you, you know he will, will never imagine yeah exactly so you know as you talk about the first sadaqa yeah. and you know islam presents two kind of uh, charities one is sadaqa which is you know a voluntary charity yeah. and the second kind of is zakat which is obligatory charity so yeah. according to the law of islam one has to pay 2 uh, 2.5% of one's cash money capital stock and tradable assets including jewelry and gold and silver of which one was in possession for one full year mm-hmm. provided that one had more than the more than the uh, you know accessible limit this is paid to help the poor and the needy as has been explained or commanded by the holy quran and explained and put into practice by the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him himself uh, the basic aim and object of zakat is uh, sympathy for mankind uh, rendering assistance to the poor to raise the standard of life of those who had been left unprovided and to protect them from mental and social degradation possible for want for want of means and by means of zakat provides the path of progress and prosperity and also of national betterment and sustainability over the uh, over the above all this uh, there is also the aim through which every man may avail his uh, you know say bright light of you know um, partnership in all that allah has created for the benefit of mankind uh, yes and the holy quran says take arms out of their wealth so that thou cleanse them and purify them thereby so this is from chapter 9 1 verse 103 regular and due payment of zakat destroy uh, destroys in man the love of wealth and releases him from the bonds and the curse of capitalism now that's interesting you know okay. so uh, capitalism I mean, is, mm-hmm. is, is 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 this is a bond that we need you know mm-hmm. are we are we is that the reason why a lot of people maybe are holding back in yeah. uh, the, the 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 the, the will to mm-hmm. gain worldly advancements rather I think than the the the, the uh, purpose behind this kind of you can say philosophy is to uh, to run the money in in society mm. so uh, when you pay the card then so it doesn't so in, in society we see that rich is getting richer and poor is getting poor so through the system of zakat islam wants that you know uh, everyone gets their right and also um you know it it At least destroys there be no poor yeah. okay so there's, there's, there is a minimum requirement of um housing uh, food and shelter yeah. uh, shelter and housing obviously so, the same so when you give the money it destroys the selfishness and greediness yeah. in you, within yourself and when it destroys it, it basically that makes a better society this is the philosophy i think behind mm. the charity or zakat or any form of you know uh charity so, So UK Charity Week is always hi- a highly anticipated event in the charity sector attracting widespread participation from individuals, businesses and organizations from all over UK. It brings together a diverse range of charitable causes from health and wellness to education and poverty to raise money and awareness for their respective missions. Each year celebration day marks the start of UK Charity Week. The day celebrates uh all things charity related and acknowledges the challenges and successes uh the causes and the causes mm-hmm. have experienced throughout the last 12 months here's the calendar of events that will be taking place throughout the week from monday the 4th of december it is celebration of charity 
Okay. Tuesday the 5th of, that's going to be tomorrow. Okay. Uh 5th of December give 5 day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess give 5 quid mm-hmm. uh, give 5 of something mm-hmm. day. Um uh, Wednesday five the 6th maybe. 5 yeah I'm uh-huh. well I'm not going to be giving 5 uh, <laughs> hours of well let's see maybe if it's there is time, the opportunity yeah. why not. Wednesday the 6th of December charity big bake. That's something which mm-hmm. you know we could do. Uh, my daughter loves to mm-hmm. uh, bake. Okay. Yeah, so I'm probably going to be thinking mm-hmm. about that. Uh, Thursday, the seventh of December is Christmas jumper day. <laughs> I mean, I'm, uh, I I'll wear a jumper, but I, I don't. It won't be for yeah. the cause of. So I just want you to give a last beautiful message by His Holiness, the fifth Caliph of the Muslim Community. He said in one of his Friday sermon, the most, um, the more affluent people should always be uh, mindful of the needs of their brothers and feelings of. Anger and dispute should never prevent them from extending their hand in help to the poor. And Ahmadi should not indulge in fulfilling his or her own desire alone, but should respect and uh, the desires and needs of his brother, sister, poor and others. Yeah, and in every society, the rich and the poor coexist and the needy of those who provide for them live by side, side by side. But there are people who, due to their greediness and self-indulgence, abstain from spending their wealth in the way of religion, nor do they fulfill the needs of the poor to the point that they become entirely oblivious to the rights of others. They do not wish to spend an iota of their wealth that is given to them by God Almighty. This kind of atti- uh, of an attitude widens the gap between people mm. and severs ties between them. It also promotes feelings of jealousy and rancor among the poor and their wealthier relatives. A believer should restrain from such greed. Mm. So that comes uh, that with that we end our first hour and. Uh, after the break and the mm. news, we will be back with the second hour of the Drive Time Show. We're going show. to talk about the genocide happening yeah. in Armenia, um, Congo and uh, and other uh, places of the world. Uh, stay tuned. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Welcome back to the second hour of the Voice of Islam Drive Time Show. Uh, I'm your host, Atao Rahman, and uh, currently I'm waiting for my um, my co-host to rejoin me but till then uh, you have me for the time being uh, we, the second hour oh he's here now anyways uh, I was just introducing my co-host Imran um, and uh, the, in the second hour we will, we will be discussing uh, the subject of genocide uh, or silent genocides in Congo Armenia and Sudan mm-hmm. so Genocides are defined as the deliberate killing of large number of people from particular nation or from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Okay. Um, so if we look at the definition of uh, genocide, it appears that such uh, incidents have been taking place throughout the history, such as the siege of uh, Carthage. Yeah. Um, this is like uh, uh, one hundred and forty-six. BC, so which claimed the thousands of uh, thousands of hundreds of thousands of life of people. Uh, so it is unfortunate that genocide have occurred throughout history, and actually, even today, it continue to happen in different parts of the world. So it's astonishing, you know. Um, we are living in the twenty first century, and still uh, these brutalities, we can say, um, atrocities yeah, are happening it's, around it's, the world. You know, it's it, it is a historic. Uh, thing and it keeps uh, mm. you know it's like it's saying uh, we're not learning from history mm. um, definitely yes. uh, if if something wrong has happened in the past mm. take lesson from it um, mm. and do not ha- 
do not repeat, repeat the yeah. same mistake but which it, it keeps happening mm. and um, it's 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 unfortunate mm. and it is unfortunate that genocides have occurred throughout history and actually even continue to happen in different parts of the world mm. some events of genocide are well known such as the holocaust uh, rwandan genocide and sabranica yet there are sad- sadly many atrocities which have received little coverage so today we'll be uh, looking at uh, silent genocides taking place in Congo, Armenia and Sudan. In the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty teaches us to create peace and preserve life. So in chapter 5 verse 33 Allah the Almighty says that we Allah prescribed for the children of Israel that whatsoever whosoever killed a person unless it be for killing a person or for creating disorder in the land it shall be as if he had killed all of the mankind. Mm-hmm. And whoso give life to one it shall be as if he had given life to all mankind so this is the important importance which the holy quran uh, when the holy quran talks about saving a life mm. and you know human life he has a the sanctity, uh, sanctity of, life, of, yeah, the, of human life is yeah. very important um because you know um no one else Uh, can take your life ex- apart from you know if god wills so if you if you're killing an innocent person uh, in society that will create disorder in the mm. land and uh, ultimately uh, people will you know um, you can say people will um, i think look it's not just the fact that killing an innocent person is killing in itself mm. is is just a, a way towards uh, towards chaos mm-hmm. okay um people are innocent people people can be guilty mm. killing in itself is 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 something that's you know it's it's uh, it's it will create a, mm. a serious serious chaos whether it's one person or uh, hundreds of people mm-hmm. um however you know the holy quran what it emphasizes on is that uh, killing one uh, mm. is like killing the entire nation okay and mm. obviously entire killing one mankind, one yeah. one one uh, innocent person is like killing the in- entire um mankind uh, so this is the this is the fundamental point here a lot of people would use self defense uh, mm-hmm. as a means to say well they are collateral damage collateral damage that's the word that they mm-hmm. would be you know mm-hmm. that's the word that's been used okay. um it's quite a it, it's a very recent word um, mm-hmm. that if we have a target and the innocent people are not innocent they're just collateral damage they shouldn't be there in the first place um which is so wrong and it's mm. just you know it, it 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 it's like saying that there is no boundaries so you, there you, is no you law say, mm-hmm. so you're saying that in the name of self defense yeah. they just don't care about the people and the, innocent look, people it, you don't know if it's self defense it's it is mm. it is to say well they uh, th- they've done this to me so i'm going to do this okay. and i'm going to and i don't care who comes mm. in my way now uh, mm. if if someone comes in my way you know I'm telling them that they shouldn't be there and you know you uh, mm. and, then, and then if that's justifying wrong actions mm. you know that you, th- there is a problem there is a serious problem there is a violation of laws there is a violation of humanity there is a violation of you know uh, human decency okay. um, mm-hmm. which which is the problem here um and you know as reminds me of uh, you know the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was the mercy for all of mankind yeah he's basically uh, he, he teaches everything you know and also he teaches about uh, he teaches us about the war so um you know uh, his holiness uh, hazrat mizam so the fifth caliph of the muslim community in in 
I think uh, in two months past, he was explaining in one of his Friday sermon that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, whenever he used to, you know, um, uh, used to fight um, as a, as a self-defense, he used to order his companion that do not uh, kill the the women and children. Only fight with those who are fighting against you. Do not cut down any tree. Uh, do not uh, mutilate the the deads of the other other uh, people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so he, uh, when I see the um, the war is happening, to, what what is happening today? I think we've got a caller. We'll yeah. talk about. It. Um, so our first guest uh, for this uh, very important subject is Anita uh, Kacha. Turova, and she is a PhD student at Science PO uh, Free Free University of Brussels, researching the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Um, peace be upon you, Kat- uh, Anita. Hi, Hi. glad to be with you. Uh, th- uh, thank you for your time. So the first question uh, is that which we would like to discuss with you is Armenia mm-hmm. has had a difficult history with brutal genocide with a brutal genocide only around a hundred years ago is there a link between the current happenings in armenia with what occurred back then um so thank you uh first of all for the invitation and um with regards to your question um you know armenia lately has experienced a, a difficult um development mm-hmm. in a region called nagorno-karabakh okay so Nagorno-Karabakh is a, used to be a disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which mm-hmm. are both two countries in the South Caucasus region. Yep. And uh, what happened uh, in the latest developments uh, in, uh, in September of this year is that uh, all of the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh, which has mm-hmm. always been the majority uh, of, uh, of the population of this region, uh, so it's its indigenous population uh, was forced uh, to flee uh, their homes and basically their homeland mm-hmm. uh, because Azerbaijan uh, on uh, September 19 attacked uh, this region okay. um, after having imposed a nine-month uh, siege on mm-hmm. the region, so blockade, mm-hmm. um, having, um, you know, Starved the population and deprived it uh, of, you know, basic um, needs, you mm-hmm. know, of uh, uh, basic uh, survival needs, so uh, medication, fuel, mm-hmm. and uh, the attack came uh, after nine months of this uh, blockade, and so uh, eventually they were all forced out. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, conflict dates um, at least thirty years. Mm-hmm. You know, it it um, um, emerged in the late 80s when uh, the Soviet Union was in a time of uh, collapse, mm-hmm. uh, where when the Armenian population, majority population of this region, demanded okay. uh, from the Soviet Union, from the Soviet um, uh, authorities at the time, mm-hmm. to secede from Azerbaijan and to join with Armenia, which was next door. Um, And following this um, movement of Armenians, there's been uh, violence directed against the indigenous Armenians of Azerbaijan, Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of which uh, there was a war that was fought uh, for several years. And in 1994, a a ceasefire was signed 
between already what were two independent states, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia became uh, independent. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the situation on the ground was that the Armenians were the victors. Mm -hmm. And uh, Azerbaijan uh, was defeated and humiliated, but also had uh, on its territory uh, hundreds of thousands of IDPs because Armenians um, captured territories beyond the disputed territory. Okay. And um, uh, in, in, in 2020, there was uh, the, that, that um, situation when Azerbaijan attacked to recover uh, the territories that uh, were both around Nagorno-Karabakh that were um, so under the control of Armenians in 94, but also parts of the territory of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh mm -hmm. itself, uh, which had already um, forced uh, thousands of Armenians um, out. Okay. And so the latest development sort of put an end to the region of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And mm -hmm. with regards to the genocide issue, um, you know, for Armenians, what happened uh, in, in recently is a, a very uh, tragic loss, a uh, very um, historical loss, because it's one of uh, Armenians' historical homelands. And of mm. course, it cannot not remind, uh, you know, millions of Armenians around the globe, but in Armenia as well, uh, the history of, uh, of the genocide in the Ottoman Empire that they've gone through mm -hmm. uh, in 1915. It's, okay. um, in Armenia, uh, most of the people of Armenia uh, have in their are in their families survivors of, of, of that genocide. Okay. So it's a very intimate uh, story for uh, most of them. Mm -hmm. And it you know, the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict is a different dynamics. You know, Azerbaijanis are not uh, the descendants of Ottoman Turks, so mm -hmm. to say. Okay. Uh, so okay. there's a different, uh, so there's a different dynamic here. But uh, the the fact is that Turkey has been very instrumental. Today's Turkey mm -hmm. has been instrumental in uh, how the situation has evolved because it has uh, backed unconditionally Azerbaijan from the beginning of the conflict so in the uh, um, late 80s uh, up to uh, today. And without the support of Turkey, mm -hmm. which, by the way, never recognized the, the genocide against the Armenians, so, so there's a whole mm -hmm. history of denial, mm -hmm. uh, it is, you know, um, really with the backing and with the whole support, mil military support of Turkey that Azerbaijan has been able okay. uh, to um, to gain that victory and expel the Armenians. Um, so Anita, uh, for, the, for the layman, it's a, ter it's a territorial war uh, or it's a religious, like um, people fighting for their religion or is it just a territory which Azerbaijan want to occupy? And um, uh, for the layman, what's the like what's the cause, root cause of this conflict? So uh, initially, it is a territorial conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, so when the first time that Armenians and Azerbaijanis fought over this territory, over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, it was in uh, uh, the you know in the beginning of the 20th century, from mm -hmm. 1918 uh, to 1921, around that time. Okay. Uh, when the, that region, the South Caucasus region, uh, basically, which was 
prior to the Bolshevik Revolution part of uh, the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, for the first time um, to uh, fight over the borders that would be the borders of the three republics that eventually uh, were established on this region, which are Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. But the problem was that at that time, on this region, there were very there were different peoples living there, and they were not living on very um, homogeneously, right? They were um, um, how to say mixed. You know, there were ter- territories mm. were mixed, so it was very okay. hard to determine who uh, will. I mean, uh, how, how where the borders mm-hmm. uh, would be um, established. Okay. And Armenian and Azerbaijanis initially, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, fought over uh, a series of uh, territories, uh, contested territories, and um, eventually this region came under the control of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. uh, in, the 1920, in 1921. Okay. And it is the Soviets who got to establish the borders mm-hmm. uh, that this region uh, would have between okay. these three uh, Soviet republics, because initially uh, it was all part of the Soviet Union, okay. mm-hmm. and the Soviet uh, leadership at the time uh, carved uh, the the borders in a way um, following the rule of uh, you know divide and rule basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it placed uh, the uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which was 90% Armenian, uh, within the borders of Soviet Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and created basically this um, um, you know uh, latent uh, conflict okay. because during the time of the Soviet Union it could not be um, um, debated it could not be voiced there were uh, there they were moments where Armenians tried to sign petitions and uh, to demand uh, the Soviet uh, leadership to. Um, to change that decision, mm-hmm. but that was always followed by uh, persecutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when eventually the Soviet Union started um, reforming, you know, in the late 80s, when when a new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, arrived mm-hmm. uh, in power and decided to reform the Soviet Union, well, uh, and, and decided that, you know, there should be more democracy, uh, more freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in that context, uh, the, the these kind of latent latent conflicts uh, that were originating from the the beginning of the Soviet Union started emerging and you know basically breaking the the through the ice, and um, and that was uh, one of the that was the case in uh, in the case of Nagorno Karabakh conflict. So initially it was mm-hmm. territorial, but eventually. Uh, it became a very um, it, an identity conflict because okay. um, because you know today uh, Azerbaijan has developed a very uh, racist anti-Armenian ideolo- ideology okay. um, and um, it is done on the state level. Okay. So uh, basically, you have uh, uh, school manuals. Uh, you have um, TV shows depicting Armenians in very uh, dehumanizing and racist ways, mm-hmm. and that's how children grow grow up. Um, so, because Azerbaijan uh, was defeated in the in the first Nagorno-Karabakh war in the 1990s, uh, it was viewed as a as a real 
um, uh, humiliation, right? And it uh, sort of crystallized um, the uh, Azerbaijani post-Soviet identity around the hatred of uh, the Armenian. Mm -hmm. So basically, today we have uh, a situation where when the parties are so antagonistic, you know, because Armenians, for example, they associate the Azerbaijanis with the Turks mm -hmm. because they are both Turkic-speaking uh, peoples and um, and because also there's a, a policy of two nations, uh, two, um, two states, one nation, right, between uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan. Although Azerbaijanis, you know, they are Shia Muslim, they're not Sunni, mm -hmm. and they are also, uh, you know, historically they've been in, in the Soviet Union mm -hmm. uh, and more uh, integrated into Persia. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's a cultural uh, and historical, there's cultural and historical difference, okay. deep difference. Mm -hmm. But for, uh, for the Armenians, uh, the, the, the Azerbaijanis are like the continuation of the Turks. So mm -hmm. there is also this antagonism. And uh, with so, time, Anita, it has become more and more um, do, um, deep. Please do tell us why the, this, this, uh, this region, Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, the Artisik, are so important to both sides. So you, you, you shed some light upon, you know, the history and uh, uh, the... the, the um, genocide mm -hmm. of the of the of the Ottoman Empire. Um so why are these two the two this the areas are so important to both of the sides? So the Nagorno Karabakh region, as I said, historically was an Armenian uh region. It was part of uh, historic Armenia, um one of the provinces uh mm -hmm. of of the one of the eastern uh, most province of uh of historic Armenia uh, which existed, um, you know, for more than 2,000 years, basically. You okay. have uh, you, you have um, monuments and uh, monasteries dating from the first century uh, after Christ, you know, uh, and uh, fourth century. There, so there are very old Armenian monuments in this region that um, testify to this old presence. And uh, and throughout uh, history, it's been integrated into different um, empires, and it's been conquered by different peoples, uh, different uh, empires. You know, there were Greeks, there were Persians, there were Arabs, there were uh, Seljuk Turks, the uh, Ottomans, the Russians. So there, th this is really uh, a, a crossroad. Uh, this is this region is really a crossroad through which so many conquerors mm -hmm. uh, passed. But uh, throughout history, the Armenians of this region had managed to uh, maintain a f form of autonomy. Hmm. And hmm. so historically and culturally, it's very important, especially uh, after the disappearance and the massacre of the Armenians of Anatolia by uh, uh, the, the Ottoman Turks in the mm -hmm. beginning of the 20th century, where part of historic Armenia was... Uh, you know, um, destroyed, and uh, Armenians lost uh, a, like the essential part of their historical homeland, and mm. were um, and and most of their civilization basically. So this part of uh, of the region, the Dagorno Karabakh, which still remained an Armenian region, was um, kept very dearly in the imagination of the Armenian people as one of the last 
stronghold of our Armenian presence on its historical homeland. Mm-hmm. So that's why it is very important uh, mm-hmm. for for the Armenians. Yeah. So uh, for mm-hmm. yes, yeah, for the Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, carry on. For the Azerbaijanis, um, this region uh, came under the the control of an Azerbaijani um, uh, tribe in uh, in the mid 18th century. Uh, so uh, back then, uh, you know, they, Azerbaijani, uh, the, the, the term Azerbaijani was referring to something else, but there, there was, it, it was basically uh, a Turkic uh, tribe present in the plains of mm-hmm. the region because Karabakh, you know, is divided between the mountainous parts where Armenians lived and okay. basically uh, the, the plains around the, that mountainous part where uh, most of um, Turkic uh, and Kurdish uh, peoples uh, lived predominantly. So at the, uh, during the mid 18th uh, century, uh, one of the um, the leaders of the one of these Turkic tribes called the Javanshia tribe managed to seize control um, of uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, uh, and it was one of the Armenian princes of uh, the of of the, the region who basically helped. That uh, that person, it was Panach Ali Khan, uh, to take control of one of the most strategic parts of uh, of the the region, and from then on, uh, established uh, a Karabakh Khanate. It was called a Karabakh Khanate. It was under the suzerainty of uh, the Persian Empire at the time, and it existed for some 60 years. And uh, it was a time of cultural um, c- cultural prosperity and renaissance uh for uh the uh the azerbaijani people as they uh see it today right yeah. so there were a lot of poets a lot of musicians um who uh um who really uh were um born in this uh, in this region especially mm-hmm. in shusha or shushi as armenian called armenian called it which is, a, which is a town where their presence was um uh, significant uh, at the time. So for the Azerbaijanis, it also has uh, a cultural significance. Okay, Anita, it was wonderful uh, having you on our mm. pro, pro, uh, on our program today. I know, I mean, it was so much information mm. uh, for for our listeners, um, and uh, we want to thank you for mm. your lovely time uh, f- for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. And and it was so my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so Have a good evening. Me. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. So you're listening to Voice of Islam, uh, and th- this is the second hour of the Drive Time Show. You can call us in on 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. Or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So Anita has pretty much mm. give, uh, she's given us a you know a lot, of, yeah, a lot of information. Uh, on on this mm-hmm. conflict, um, yeah. let me just summarize it. Mm-hmm. That the Guardian, amongst other news outlets, uh, amongst other news outlets, have reported that for many months Armenians have been suffering due to a blockade placed on by their neighbor Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Uh, ethnic Armenians who had uh, who had remained there faced a humanitarian crisis. As a result, 120,000 people are trapped, living with limit uh, limited essentials. The face. Uh, they face a shortage of food and medicine, causing a risk of malnutrition in thousands of children. According wow. to the former chief prosecutor of the International Court, uh, International Criminal Criminal Court, Luis Marino Ocampo, uh, there is a reasonable basis to believe that a genocide is being committed. 
um, uh, Amir Bayov, uh, a representative of the President of the Republic of Azerbaijan, said said in DW interview in a DW interview, a genocide may happen only if this clique of separatists will continue to hold hostage their own population. In September, Azerbaijan launched a military offensive. The situation is ongoing, with some analysts saying that a stage uh, leading to genocide. Um, so, what has Mirza, uh, how, uh, what has the Imam, uh, um, beloved Imam, has? Yeah, I think said um, he said in one of his piece imposing that I believe it is essential to keep the channels of communication open and to strive to find mutual acceptable term of agreement. If, however, the aggressor remains bent on uh, causing misery and distraction and and refu- refuses to withdraw, Islam teaches that other nations should join together as one and use proportionate and necessary force to end the cruelties. The objective of the of the intervening parties must remain at all times to establish peace instead of seeking revenge or humiliating the aggressor, nor should the underlying intention ever be to line one's pocket or to exploit the conflict to advance vested interest. Moving swiftly with our programme, we have our second caller. Uh, it's Professor Phil Clark, who is a professor of international politics specialising in conflict and post-conflict issues uh, at SOAS. Uh, good evening, Professor. Welcome to have you on our show. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, not an issue at all. Um, so the Rwanda and Congo are neighbouring countries. This is going to be moving into our second subject, uh, you know, the second uh, genocide that we're mm-hmm. discussing, uh, with, former, with the former having uh, gone through a horrible genocide not long ago. How is the current situation in DRC related to this? The, the, the current violence in Congo uh, stems in many ways uh, directly from uh, the Rwandan genocide against the Tutsi in 1994. What happened after the Rwandan genocide was that many of the Hutu perpetrators uh, fled into eastern Congo. There were about 2 million Hutu uh, Mm -hmm. who who fled Rwanda in, in the middle of 1994. Now, many of them were innocent civilians, but many of them had participated directly in the violence. And over time, many of those genocide perpetrators uh, created new rebel movements Mm -hmm. uh, that then started to target the civilian population in eastern Congo and and also in parts of of Rwanda. So if you look at much of the violence that's happening in Congo today, not all of it, but much of it has some direct connection back to what happened in Rwanda in 1994. Mm -hmm. Right. And why do you think uh, Congo is being uh, underreported? I think the main reason the Congolese conflict, which of course has been going for about 25 years and and, and it's claimed the lives of about 5 million people, I think the reason that that's underreported is that really the world only seems capable of ever covering one major conflict at a time. If you Look at all of the uh, focus on Gaza and Israel uh, mm-hmm. in the last uh, few weeks. In mm-hmm. fact, that's knocked Ukraine uh, completely yeah. off uh, the world's uh, headlines. Mm-hmm. And, and Africa's always last in line mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for this kind of coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other factor here is that the Congolese conflict uh, is incredibly complex. It's multi-layered. It has many actors. It's difficult for journalists to, to tell a simple story about that conflict. So I think there are lots of reasons ultimately why uh, the world's media doesn't tend to pay very much attention to, to the Congolese conflict. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, so Professor, um, 
how can you know conflict which go back for many years and that have you know you, you talked about many layers and it is very complicated be you know be, be, can be you know solved and brought to an end i think the key with a, a conflict like congo which has gone on for so long is that any response has to be multi-leveled um I think the most important thing, though, is that it, it has to be political. I think we have to get rid of this idea that we can end mass conflict through more conflict. A military solution Definitely, is not yeah. going to work in a mm. place like Eastern Congo. It, it really needs a political solution, but mm. also it needs to resolve conflicts at other levels of society. It's not just about national politics. It's it's also community-based. Some of the most important peace-building work mm. happening in Congo at the moment is being done by religious leaders. It's being done by customary leaders. It's being mm. done at this, at this local level because many of the drivers of this conflict are not just national and political, but they're also about very localized factors around land, around ethnicity, around natural resources. And so... Mm. Peace in that kind of context uh, requires interventions at these mm. different levels, and then they have to be coordinated in in a very clear and systematic way. I think, very, as you mentioned, very important point that you know we do sometimes think that the these conflict can be solved through wars, but I think the war itself is a problem rather than you know uh, of of solution of something. So, um, Professor, um, importantly, what needs to be done to end the suffering of Congolese civilians? I think the suffering of uh, of Congolese civilians again is something that that needs a, a multi-leveled uh, response. It, mm-hmm. it needs these interventions, not just at the national level but also at the uh, local level. And and I think there's also a need to put much more pressure on the Congolese state in all of this. Okay. The mm-hmm. Congolese government has consistently failed to bring security to the eastern part of, of, of the country, but also to deliver basic services. And And Congolese citizens are suffering for those two absences, um, the lack of security, but also the lack of services. And much of that uh, falls at the, at the feet of not just the current Congolese government, but really every single Congolese government uh, going back to the mid 1990s. Mm-hmm, um, Professor, um, we see throughout the history there are several genocides uh, right now happening in Azerbaijan, between Azerbaijan and you know Armenia. Um, then we're talking about Congo and also uh, other genocide is happening in Sudan. So um, is there a way to end genocide across the world or a way to prevent future ones? I think the key there is the second word that you use, prevent. I, I think we have to get much more agile and and, and much faster uh, to react in terms of preventing genocides. Because if we look at all of the genocides of the last hundred years, many of them had very obvious warning signs, Mm -hmm. whether that was the Holocaust or the genocide in Cambodia or in Darfur or in Congo or in Azerbaijan. There was always a build-up to genocide. One of the things that genocide scholars emphasize is that genocides always happen in the context of a preceding civil war. They they don't come out of nowhere. They're always part of an escalation of a previous conflict. Hmm. What that means is that there is a buildup. There is a process towards genocide. And and we Hmm. now have a much more sophisticated understanding of, of the warning signs. So if we can see the warning signs, then we should be able to put in place some sort of preventive measure. I'll give you a concrete example of this. If we look mm-hmm. at what's happening in Eastern Congo at the moment, there is very worrying inflammatory language being used against particular minority groups, particularly mm-hmm. the, the Tutsi of, of Eastern Congo, the okay. same ethnic group that was targeted during the Rwandan genocide. Now, the language that is being used against the Tutsi in Eastern Congo, we know 
historically tends to lead to mass violence. And yet we're not mm. seeing very much being done by the Congolese government, by the international peacekeeping mission that's uh, there in eastern Congo or by other actors to, to really intervene uh, to try to quell this kind of ethnically violent language that, mm. that has a tendency to lead to violent action. Now, that's an, an issue on which there can be very direct prevention, and yet we're not seeing enough action in, in, in that particular domain. So we need to look for warning signs um, to, to allow us to, to, to actively prevent genocides uh, before they begin to take place. Right. Thank you very much for your explanation in time, uh, Professor, um, and it was lovely to have you on the show. Always my pleasure to be on your program. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for your time. Have a nice day. So, Professor's pretty much given us a very, mm. you know, he's, he's given us a good precursor and a good um, s- a way to understand mm-hmm. this whole uh, subject. So, let's more let's 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 delve into mm-hmm. it. The Democratic Republic of Congo (DRC) is a country located in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. It's a long history. It it's got a long history of being under the colonization of Belgium. Okay. Congo may have gotten independence in 1960, but the country continued to be in turmoil. In the, in the early 60s, there were mutinies, a dictatorship, and other internal disputes. With a change in leadership, Congo became known as Zaire from 1971 to 1997. Many financial problems engulfed the country during this period. In 1997, Tutsi rebels took control of the east and once capturing the capital city of uh, Kinshasa, they renamed the city uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Earlier, it was the Tutsi population of Rwanda and Burundi which faced ethnic cleansing at the hands of Tutsi uh, militias. Hutu militias. Um, Hutu militias. Um, and in 1994, this genocide uh, in the middle of Rwanda's Rwandan um, civil war estimated 60 to 70 percent of the uh, Tutsi people, um, you know, accounting for seven percent of the whole country's population. Now, some this is basically mm-hmm. what 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 has seven percent of a population was eliminated. Wow. So. Th- just imagine a it's it's pretty much you know when you discuss the subject of genocide it mm. is a um, you know it's it's an ev- it's it's a wiping out of not just people mm. but it's a mm. wi- wiping up out of an of an identity yeah. of a of a of a way of thinking mm. um so the this this whole you know this this word genocide itself mm. you know it, it will come later on mm. in, in 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 the program uh, it it just has such scary connotations mm-hmm. um I think Professor Philip was uh, Phil was um, talking about earlier that it's uh, it's this, uh, the the genocide does not happen like uh, mm. in a night. It's a build up of you know previous war, previous conflict. Yeah. And uh, he, he gave the very beautiful example, and that you know um, th- when when the leader of of the when the state when leader of the state they use aggressive language mm. and uh, you know abusive language or hostile you know gave the hostile statements regarding um, uh, towards regarding each people, other yeah. then that escalate the conflict it, cr- it creates a serious uh, problem, problem and it, it's and like you know it's 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 an attack on an ego mm-hmm. and it just spreads like wildfire betw- mm-hmm. between that whole you mm-hmm. know for instance people who who relate to that yeah. ethnicity or that group of people 
and uh, it just creates serious uh, resentments between. Uh, so in 19, uh, some Tutsi refugees moved to East Congo following this torture. Here it is important to mention a teaching of the Holy Quran. O mankind, we have created you from a male and female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among, uh, among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. More leadership uh, battles occurred in DRC, this time foreign and neighboring countries also playing a part. Relating, uh, related issues to the, conflict, uh, to the conflict in Congo include the fact that this land is home to many valuable metals and minerals. This plays a part in the troubles which they are facing. In 2002, a peace deal was signed between Doc, uh, DR Congo and Rwanda after the loss of many lives uh, in related conflicts. Whilst politically the situation was getting better, 2007 saw the Ebola virus affecting the region. Uh, despite UN uh, peacekeeping efforts, Congo um, you know, continued to face troubles. By 2008, rebel forces had reappeared strongly and DR uh, Congo suffered further conflicts. Uh, the March 23rd movement, abbreviated as M23, um, is the liberal military group which is formed mostly of ethnic Tutsi people based in eastern area of uh, DR Congo. Their rebellion of 2012 against the government led to the displacement of many people. Today, this means that innocent Congolese people are facing inhumane and atrocities treatment. The Human Rights Watch reported earlier this year that the Rwanda-backed uh, M23 were carrying um, out uh, executions and forced recruitment of civilians. More than uh, 520,000 people have been forced to flee, according to UN. This displacement is causing a health disaster with the spread of cholera in camps. Uh, social media has been uh, exposing such crime on, uh, on innocent civilian, but not enough coverage has been given to the happenings in Congo. There have been reports of men being called out of homes and killed, and women and children being abused, if not also massacred. Now, survivors' testimonies reveal horrifying stories and realities about uh, their torture. Since 1996, it is estimated that 6 million people have been killed as a result of conflict in DRC. His Holiness as a Mizam Surah, may Allah be his helper, the fifth caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, um, summed up the path to peace. He said one of his, uh, his speeches, uh, a golden principle given by the founder of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that a true Muslim should like for others what he likes for himself. I believe that this simple and profound point, if acted upon, not just by Muslims, but all other people is the means for everlasting peace in society. A brilliant message right at the end. Now, moving swiftly with our uh, program, we have our third and final guest for the show, and that is Dr. Martin Crook, who is a senior lecturer in sociology at University of West London, uh, West England. His PhD examines the nexus between genocide and ecological destruction. Uh, he was a guest on our Holocaust show, uh, Holocaust show earlier this year. Uh, happy to uh, welcome Dr. Martin Crook to the program today. Hello, hi. Thank you for for inviting me. 
uh, not a problem at all. So uh, how do genocides begin when the population of those being ethnically cleansed is much larger than those committing such atrocities? Um, so I think the, 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 quest, the answer to that question is a relatively straightforward one. Um, it's, it, it amounts to it, massive imbalances in power. So, you know, so, so in other words, uh, the uh, demographic advantage that the native population might have is, is flattened out or, or erased by the sheer, you know, economic and military power that the uh, genocidaires, those who are responsible for genocide, have at their disposal. So just as a, as a way of example, if you think about the um, colonization of Australia, which began in the late 18th century, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the British colonists, when they first arrived, um, were, of course, in a, in a minority. The, the estimates for indigenous Australians, you know, ranges from between, uh, at the point of original contact, between 300,000 to a million. And yet, within a few decades, and certainly by the end of the 19th century, um, British colonists, um, had almost uh, wiped in, out entirely the native population, reducing their numbers from a nearly a million to something like 100,000 because they had guns, because they had, you know, disease, um, because they had uh, various other technologies. So I think mm-hmm. that's usually the explanation when when considering these these um, these these sort of imbalances in demography that you refer to, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Martin. Um if we look towards the history, we've seen the Holocaust, we've seen the genocide in Bosnia, but mm. and still a genocide happening um, in different parts of the world. Uh, it seems like we have never learned from from our history. Yes, uh, sadly, that's that's true. Um, so I guess this sort of implicit question is why why did genocide still continue? Mm-hmm. Obviously, that the the lesson of the Holocaust was. Uh, never again mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that was supposed to be and in my mind and in my heart really it is a universal lesson mm-hmm. uh, but for some uh, unfortunately um, they either have forgotten that lesson or you know reduced it to you know certain certain categories of people that are allowed to to survive and flourish um, and ignoring that that universal nature the universal sort of implication of, of the lessons of the, mm-hmm. of the Holocaust um, I think of course um, there are other factors involved in, in explaining why genocide still uh, uh, continues still endure um, Think about the, the the Genocide Convention, 1948. It was ratified, um, but almost immediately, um, you know, of course, it was in the shadow of the World War II. The tens of millions of people that were were killed, mm-hmm. the extermination of six million Jews, Roma gypsies as well, communists, um, homosexuals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the shadow of the many genocides that the Nazis committed hung hung over the the drafters of the Genocide Convention. But almost immediately, what happened was the the drafters and the parties to the convention, and namely the the governments, the states like Britain, the United States, uh, the Soviet Union, were worried about incriminating themselves. So they narrowed and narrowed the definition, gutting the definition of the genocide uh, of genocide, mm-hmm. so that they could uh, absolve themselves. They could ensure that they would never 
fall foul of the Genocide Convention mm -hmm. because, of course, the British Empire had many subject populations that were mm -hmm. suffering various mm -hmm. forms of mass atrocities. So that's one of the, the problems, I think. Um, and then, of course, the Cold War, which essentially paralyzed the, the UN system. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> So I think those are some of the, the important uh, reasons why genocides were still allowed to continue. Mm. Um, and then even after the Cold War ended, um, mm. you know, there was a promise, there was a hope that we could now ensure that no one was above international law. So, you know, Genocide Convention mm -hmm. was part and parcel of a broader system of international criminal law, which had a number of international crimes like, you know, crimes against humanity, war crimes, the crime of aggression, illegal mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. um, and no one was allowed to, to be above the law, mm -hmm. um, including heads of state. But what unfortunately happened was the UN system, to put it crudely, was captured mm -hmm. uh, by some of the most powerful states in the world, in, in, in particular the United States uh, and, its, and its junior partners. So, you know, I was just listening to, um, I don't know if your listeners would be aware, but um, not that long ago, Craig Mockaber, who um, was formerly the director of the UN UN's New York office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. He resigned mm -hmm. in protest mm -hmm. at what's happening in, in Gaza. Okay. And uh, I would I'd recommend your listeners to listen to his interview with, um, with Brianna Joy Gray on her podcast, Bad Faith, mm -hmm. where okay, he goes into detail about why he thinks what's happening in, in Gaza right now is genocide. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and he, he very eloquently describes how the UN is fractured or, or split into these different elements. You know, you have on mm -hmm. the one hand those independent elements based on, you know, the, the principles and norms of human rights, uh, the various agencies like the experts and rapporteurs in human rights, uh, the treaty bodies that enforce and oversee the various human rights treaties. They have consistently and continually documented violations of human rights, mm -hmm. uh, mass atrocity crimes, and so on. So they've been consistent. But on the other hand, mm -hmm. you have a political sort of layer of the UN system uh, that has essentially been captured by power, and they remain silent, and they constantly mm -hmm. uh, sabotage attempts by people within the UN system to enforce international criminal law and the stance of human rights. And, and um, that's another reason, I think, <laughs> why people get away with uh, genocide, to put it, put it crudely. Mm -hmm. So just to summarise, in the long run, what principles need to be in place so that genocides are put to an end once and for all? Uh, well, I think, it, you know, um, what we need to do is, is, is enforce... Uh, the principles of international uh, human rights law, international humanitarian law. We have to enforce the UN uh, uh, con uh, Genocide Convention. So we, we need to call on, you know, governments to basically honour their legal obligations under the Genocide Convention. And that would include Britain, that would include the United States, the, the various member states of the European Union, and so on and so forth, to prosecute uh, you know, to, to call on the International Criminal Court to issue, you know, investigations, to begin investigations mm -hmm. uh, um, of those responsible for genocide and mass atrocities and so on, uh, to do everything in their power to prevent 
um, genocide taking place. That's another requirement of the Genocide Convention. Mm-hmm. So take, for instance, if you'll allow me to just give you one, one mm-hmm. very brief example, um, again, to use the, the, the current example of what's taking place in Gaza, um, uh, it, the Genocide Convention also, uh, also um, makes um, unlawful complicity mm-hmm. in genocide. So the uh, enabling of the commission of the crimes of genocide. So the United States has continued to arm, for instance, Israel mm-hmm. um, and provide billions of dollars in aid, which mm-hmm. is enabling the continuation of, of certain practices uh, and, and uh, actions okay. in the occupied territories, which mm-hmm. are responsible for, in the opinion of many experts, the unfolding of, of genocidal dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we need to do is, as citizens, uh, do everything we can to put pressure on our governments to basically honor their commitments under international law, write to your MPs, join demonstrations, you name it, mm-hmm. um, to respect our commitments under international law. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Martin, and um, excellent uh, insights and excellent suggestions as well. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for your time. Have a nice day. You're listening to Voice of Islam. Uh, We're entering into the final few minutes of the program, so let's quickly touch upon the Sudan Mm -hmm. uh, genocide. This year, the Sudanese region of Darfur has faced a number of massacres by the RSF, or the Rapid Super Forces, support forces. Uh, People mostly belonging to the Masalit ethnic group have been targeted of uh, of these attacks. Uh, troubles in Darfur go back a long time. Until 18, 1955, Sudan was under the British Egyptian rule, but gained independence in 1956. In 1958, there was a military co-op led by General Aboud against the elected government uh, of the time. In 1962, saw, uh, saw a civil war erupt, erupt in the south, led by a movement named uh, Anya Naya. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a number of changes in leadership and power throughout this time. Despite peace deals in 1983, there was another civil war between the government and uh, the government forces and the Sudanese liberation movement. Uh, the same year, President Numeri declared Sharia law in the nation. In 1985, Numeri was forced out of office by a transitional uh, military council after widespread, uh, widespread unrest in the country. This was followed by a coalition government and uh, elected Sadiq al-Mahdi as the mm-hmm. new prime minister. Uh, they did not last long, and in '89, the National Salvation uh, Revolution took over in uh, a military co-op. A few years later, General Omar al-Bashir was appointed president of Sudan. In the 1990s, Sudan became more involved in in geopo- uh, geopolitics, with President. Uh, Hosni Mubarak accusing Sudan of an asa- of an assassination attempt in 1998 the US struck the capital Khartoum mm-hmm. with mis- with a missile alleging that they were preparing chemical weapons the power struggle continued with president Bashir declaring a state of emergency in response to his feud with the speaker Hassan al-Turabi from the beginning of the 21st century Sudan was engulfed in trouble with the uh, Dafar region, rebel groups and civil war forced many refugees to flee to neighboring Chad. Many non-Arab villagers were killed by Arab pro-government militias in this region. The next few years see more fighting, peace deals, UN sanctions, uh, changing leaderships, diplomatic tensions and eventually an arrest warranted by the ICC to present Bashir for war crime against humanity. 
Finally, towards the end of 2009, the North Vasli Muslim and South Vasli Christian of the nation agreed to a referendum regarding independence. Bashir remained in charge. Uh, in 2011, uh, South becomes independent. However, some clashes continue in both countries and rebel groups are still prevalent. Now, there are uh, economic issues as well. In in 2019, Bashir is overthrown. Prime Minister Hamdouk fa- uh, forms new government as a part of a three-year power-sharing agreement with the military, civilian representative and protest, uh, protest groups. As a result of the power struggle between RSF and the SAF, thousands have been killed and millions face to flee. So I think this this conflict is it, going His, his on. Holiness has observed mm. at the events across the globe and noted, in our selfish quest of wealth and power, we are ruthlessly destroying the prospects of today's youth through a never-ending stream of perpetual injustice and savage, uh, savage cruelty. Recently, there has been violence in Khartoum uh, that have killed hundreds of people. Mm. For many months, tensions were rising uh, between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary group um, RSF, who together overthrew the government in the 2021 uh, via a co-op. The army initially helped and promised to give power to those elected by civilians, but it uh, it began arresting the civilian prime minister in the 2021 protests. Uh, Following such unrest, a plan had been set out uh, for the army as well as the RSF, to seize their powers and to transition to civilians part uh, to civilian parties governing the nation. However, there were points in this deal which proved content, uh, contentious, and the RSF and the army uh, turned against each other. A complicated history, and with different players fighting uh, for power over the country over f- 46 million, has led to the current conflict. Uh, army General Abdul Fateh Al Burhan, de facto president, accused of atrocities of in Darfur versus Mohammed Hamdan uh, Hameti uh, Degalo RSF has Darfur roots now just to conclude genocides are undoubtedly horrific yet mm. it seems we have not learned from history and are continuously going through destruction instead of peace and justice uh, these pris- uh, principles are basic and are taught by all religions for example the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said whoever you s- whoever of you sees something uh, repugnant mm-hmm. you sh- he should change it by his hand if not if he has not the strength then do so by the word of mouth and if he cannot do so then dislike it at heart and endeavor to reform through prayer but this was the weakest of faith mm-hmm. so to conclude today's program I'd like to thank our producers um, Sabiha Tariq for the first hour and Fazia Haq uh, for the second hour 